Welcome friends and colleagues. We will speak today about the different presentations of the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's no secret that these two presentations are very different. In chapter 1 you have a grand God-centered telling of the story. Man is not explained, it's just a part of the natural order created us are animals. There's no image of God. There's a woman as a part of the species. There's no relationship of God and women and men. Uh, they are presenting us part of the creation of living things. Uh, furthermore, the name that's used in the uh, first chapter of Genesis is a name Elohim which is the same name that is usually used for God in nature. A, a fairly removed and uh, distant uh, name, uh, which perhaps means powers. Nachmanides talks about it, or it means the God of the sea in a Kabbalistic sense. But nothing to do with humans, really. And... Um, the whole presentation is sublime. You know, I imagine that if it was put to music or to film, it would be grand, overpowering, harmonious, uh, elevated melody and uh, images. In chapter 2, you have, have the name Elohim, but it's Hashem Elohim, meaning the ineffable name of God that we don't pronounce, but God clearly not in nature, He who was, is, and will be. And it's combined with Elohim, so it's sort of that trans-natural figure that we've already spoken about in our discussion of the first verses of Genesis. God who is above the world and within the world, stretching from the highest beyond heavens to the earth. This has certainly been noticed. Um, already Spinoza uh, kind of referred to it. Then uh, Jonah Encroft in 1708, Gina Struk, and all their ideas were tied together by Wellhausen, the generator of the documentary hypothesis. Documentary hypothesis rained. It rained for a long time. But uh, now it's kind of collapsed. In fact, Wikipedia uses language, says that the consensus for Wellhausen has now collapsed. Let's put things in a little perspective. The, at the time that Wellhausen was creating his idea, the reigning concept in Germany the German idealism philosophically was that things start from primitive and become more complex and more perfect and finally reach perfection. In biological sphere, following this idea, we had the theory of evolution. In the economic sphere, we had Marxism, the historical eras that inexorably proceed to communism. Uh, the state of society in which 
to each according to his needs, from each according to his abilities. And the same was applied to religion. Uh, it is not for nothing that Rabbi David Hoffman called higher criticism, that is the documentary hypothesis, higher anti-Semitism. The concept was that religion too progresses from uh, very primitive uh, numism to paganism to Judaism, which is an intermediate stage, and then of course to Christianity, which is the most elevated stage. Our religion, not the religion of the others. So all of this is kind of in the mindset of the age, but uh, separating the the Torah into four sources has its big problems, many big problems. So Wellhausen came up with the idea that there are four major sources, <coughs> one that uses the name of God, Elohim, one that uses the name Mikhevovke, the ineffable name, and also priestly code that deals with sacrifices and purity, and Deuteronomic code, the book of Deuteronomy. Problem is that if you apply the same methodology that he applied, you end up separating each source into additional sources, and yet additional sources, and you end up with something called the fragmentary hypothesis that there were just hundreds, you could say, you could generate thousands of sources that then were cobbled together by a redactor, capital R. Another uh, movement uh, to reform the community hypothesis is that of uh, supplementary hypothesis that believes that there was one major source and then there were some other fragments appended to it. In its very minimalistic sense that is probably compatible with the views of some of the medieval authorities, the Rishonim, uh, but that's another discussion. The problem, the real problem with Wellhausen is not even this sub objections. It is that us literature and general understandings progressed, it became quite visible that there isn't just one way to write. See, in the time of Wellhausen, we had the great European novel, very chronological, starts in the beginning, ends at the end, logically progresses, very Germanic in its whole construction. But now we have all kinds of other writing styles. We have flashbacks, we have magical realism, we have several stories going on at the same time, like uh, Bulgakov's uh, Mary Magdalene, for example, um, and, and many other ways, stream of consciousness, etc., etc. So we now understand very clearly and very deeply that there are many ways to write and present. As we discussed before, one way to write and present is to present two ongoing stories at the same time. In cinematography, it's called the split screen technique. 
And then it's up to the reader to reconcile and put it together into one story. What are the advantages of such a presentation? First of all, it allows clearer perception of each opposite. In the process of putting the two together, you see depth and stereoscopic vision. You see it very differently. Uh, in addition, you become the part of the story. You become the storyteller, which means you buy into it. It becomes your story. So we talked already about how uh, the Torah uses such techniques either concurrently in the presentation of story, such as Rebellion of Korah, or by presenting uh, the same story in two different ways. The same goes for legal sections. Fine. So what might these two presentations then actually present? So I will start with the contribution of Rabbi Soloveitchik, disclosure, my teacher, under whom I studied. Rabbi Dov Bear Soloveitchik, or jo Joseph Dov Bear, Joseph Dov, Joseph Bear, uh, that's not important, but he gave a series of lectures in the Fordham University, uh, which resulted in two books, one of which, The Lonely Man of Faith, uh, presented an approach to these two chapters. They've become very famous. Uh, every thinking uh, modern Orthodox Jew knows about this. What I'm going to do is present that and then show that this approach is actually much older than Rabbi Soloveitchik. So, the way he presented it in The Lonely Man of Faith, chapter 1 was about subduing nature, men as the ruler of nature, men as a part of nature, uh, and, and nature is the domain for power and sovereignty, and he called this, the first type of man, the majestic man. The relationship with the woman is utilitarian. The relationship with God is distant um, and not very prominent. In chapter 2, we're presented to redemptive men, men of faith, a man who is now in a relationship with God, a man who is in relationship with woman, and ultimately in a relationship with others. These relationships are deep. Just like Hashem Elohim, God who transcends nature, is a warm, personal, and intimate God, so is the man who is portrayed in chapter 2. So the Torah, in other words, presents to us this duality in man, man as the builder, conqueror, and subduer of nature, and man as uh, a, a being among other beings in a relationship, in a dynamic state, part of a collective, a husband, a worker, a religious man. This this is all pretty well known, but I was greatly surprised about 15 years ago when I started studying the Nitziv commentary about Naftali Tzvi Berlin and the commentary on the uh, five books of Moses and Chumash and the great, great, uh, I'm sorry, just one great grandfather of Rabbi Soloveitchik. This familiar relationship in which Rabbi Soloveitchik's father was Denitziv's grandson makes it very likely that 
Rabbi Soloveitchik was at the very least familiar with this idea from Tanitsev's commentary. Now, in Tzif's commentary, uh, I would cite to you chapter 1, verse... Verse, I believe, let me just find it. Four... And he says that uh, if not for the sin of men, there would be really two types of men. Uh, this is in his commentary to, to verse 4. And you really have to read through the rest of the chapter. Um, there are, uh, he comes back to this idea uh, also uh, towards the end of the chapter. But the original plan was to have a man who subdues nature and um, the would, that man would work in conjunction and under the man who would be a religious man and a man of faith. That man may have been the woman. Uh, it's very not according to modern sensibilities. But the idea is that there would be a religious man and would be a separate man from the utilitarian man. Now that there was this sin, the man's dual nature is that, that he is both a conqueror and a thinker, both a builder and a conceptualizer, both a man of spirit and religion and a man of technology and uh, agriculture and architecture, etc. The only one who I noticed, who I ever seen, uh, noticed this commentary of the Nitziv and traced it uh, together with uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik was uh, Dr. Mark Shapiro in his lecture on the Nitziv and the website Torah in Motion. All right, so we went back a hundred years or so, we found that this approach is not unique and not new with Rabbi Soloveitchik. But further investigation brought me to realize that actually it's very much older. And it comes from Philo Judeus, uh, Philon in Hebrew. Some people say Philo, who live in Alexandria, oh, about a hundred years before the destruction of the temple and wrote in the allegorical Greek tradition. He wrote a book on Genesis, <clears throat> in which he uh, explained chapter 1 and chapter 2 in the prevailing uh, Greek mode of thought. There was a lot of interest in Alexandria at that time in uh, Jewish books. Uh, there is an anonymous work called De Sublimatete, which talks about writing, especially of the first two chapters of Genesis, as a paradigm, an example of uh, elevating good writing. And uh, in that tradition, things represented things. So uh, stories in Genesis were representative of the same ideas the Greeks were gra grappling with through their mythology. 
<coughs> so Philo wrote that in chapter 1 you have a heavenly man, a man who is only the mind, a man who is tied into nature. And in second one, in second chapter, you have a man who is a body. He engages with the woman, he sins, he eats, he tills the soil. So here's another source, and a much earlier one, that explains Genesis 1 and 2 as talking about two different kinds of men. So in terms of a paradigm and a philosophical idea, it is powerful and precise. In terms of exegesis, it explains why you have two different presentations. In chapter 1 and in chapter 2. So just to briefly review, we pointed out that chapter 1 and chapter 2 present different accounts of creation, especially with the names of God they use, and especially with the description of men that they put forth. We briefly discussed how that gave rise to the documentary hypothesis. And then we discussed Rabbi Soloveitchik's explanation of, of these two different presentations, the Nitzif's explanation, and the fact that this goes back way, way into antiquity to the writings of Philon and Genesis. Thank you very much for listening, and may you have only blessings.